courageous women in the Bible. And in the last week, if you were here, I tried to um, do the panoramic view. You know, we started with the text from Revelation, the image of the woman who was in childbirth and the serpent was waiting to kill her son. And so that was a picture that uh, Jesus gave to John of the whole epic battle of, of Israel bringing about the Redeemer and, um, and Satan waiting to destroy him. And then we went back to the specific accounts in the Bible that I could think of, right? the Sarah and Hagar conflict, and then moving down to Tamar, insisting that she have the inheritance rights, and so she seduced or pretended to be a prostitute to her father-in-law and, and gave birth to the sons, one who would be in the line of Jesus. And then um, from Tamar, we went down to um, Joshua, and attacking the city, and Rahab the harlot was saved, and because she trusted in Yahweh, and then her son was Boaz, and then Boaz is the one that Ruth encounters, and she she encourages him to um, cover her and to redeem her and bring her into a, an inheritance to restore the inheritance to be her kinsman redeemer by her back in reconnect the dots, and God blesses Ruth with a baby named Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then David has the, um, I was reading that story again today, of his um, sin with Bathsheba resulted in a, a baby that died, but then later in their marriage, um, she gave birth to Solomon, and and David um, was in his old age was ambiguous about who would get the throne next and he didn't really make it clear and one of his sons um, Absalom's brother I think Abijah tried to set up himself up as king and had a couple of guys help him and um, Nathan the prophet came to Bathsheba and said you need to get David to make Solomon king or it's going to be too late and so Bathsheba approached King David and and said, you promised me that you would make Solomon king. And then while she was still talking, Nathan came in and said, you know, right now, was it your plan to make Abijah the king? Because right now they're anointing him as king somewhere. And so David took actions and he proclaimed Solomon as king. And so here Bathsheba, again, with all of the uh, scandal in their past, she asserts her rights and, and defends against the odds, you know, it was probably dangerous for her to even go visit King David. And uh, she asserts her rights and, um, and seeks a place for her son's throne and God establishes Solomon as the king. And so the idea was that in all of these, oh, I missed the one about the Egyptian midwives who didn't um, kill the babies, the Egyptian baby, the Israelite babies, and they, he, they lied to Pharaoh and said, you know, hey, we can't get there in time. These women are so healthy. They just give babies so fast that we don't even get there in time. And because of their defense of the children of Israel, they, um, they were blessed with large families as well. So these are all examples. And the common characteristic that I saw in all of the examples is that there's always sort of a sniff of a whiff of, I don't know what, there's a hint is a better way to say it, of scandal a little bit, right? It's, it's sad that um, Tamar had to pretend to be a prostitute and, and these other things. 
And so the scandal is kind of there maybe, but I think in most cases it probably can be viewed as not scandalous, but it is sort of. And then the other thing is that they're courageous and that also they were fighting against the system, the odds, the, the, the cultural mores, the way it worked in their world did not give them rights to assert. You know, there was no way for Tamar to go to a court of law and say, Judah is not letting me have his third-born son because he's supposed to, to have lineage for, for me to be part of the inheritance, but he's not holding up to his part of the deal. There was no advocate. She, there was no, she had no alternative, apparently, and so she took matters into her own hands and figured out how to solve that problem. And in, in a lot of these cases, there's a, there's a radical um, overcoming of the systems of the way life and culture is in, in history. Right? So the, the women are oppressed or, or powerless or otherwise at the mercy of the men in the situation. And so we, we didn't really know how to interpret all that, but we sort of started down that road. And, um, and I wondered, did anyone have any thoughts since last week about that that you wanted to talk about or say or some observations about this or not? And then when and if you have those and that's done, then I have some plans for us to continue further down this path of investigation. So did anybody have any thoughts about that or? anything just to follow you know just to respond a little bit to the thread that we started last week and we ran out of time and I, I wanted to uh, it, at least uh, give you opportunity did I see your hand I just think that if the Lord can use me or anyone here um, why can't he use those situations and how do we know culturally how offbeat that was, I mean, today we do a lot of things that people back then would probably think were a lot horrible, more than they did. I think one of the things you're saying is it's a challenge to try to compare the cultural differences. And um, what would seem to be normal to them seems odd and antiquated to us and vice versa, I'm sure. But that is part of this whole dynamic is which parts of the whole human relationship, the male-female relationship, the roles and responsibilities, which parts of those are biblical, timeless principles, and which parts of those are cultural mores, cultural, culturally bound practices. And one of the things I've been convicted of in particular lately, and this is partly uh, as a result of, uh, well, I'll suspend that diatribe and let Donna say something first. So. I didn't, I, I, I'm going to go too long. I've been thinking about this since last week, and interestingly enough, some memories came back of how even some of our fundamental churches have treated women as if they were somehow second-class citizens. The year I went to Venezuela, there were three of us who were short-term teachers, a man who had a background in science and math, me who had a Bible degree, and another lady, and they gave him 
the science and math classes, and they gave him the Bible classes because he was a man. And at that time, I just kind of accepted it because that's how life was back then. Except that that was kind of a problem because some of the Bible doctrines he was teaching were not in agreement with what the mission believed. So fast forward a few more years. Um, when I joined Baptist Men Missions, I had to, one a part of the application process is filling out a doctrinal, to writing your own doctrinal statement with verses. And then a panel of pastors would interview you and you'd have to defend your, your statement. The one with Baptist Mid worked out pretty good. Uh, Dr. Welch was actually part of that panel who was president of, of the college at the time. And he seemed pleased. A few years later, many years later, I joined another mission board with Tim, but as a wife. And I did the same thing. I wrote my own doctrinal statement with verses. I answered the questions just like he did. And at the end, the last question they asked was if I agreed with everything he had in his statement. So whatever I wrote was nothing. All they wanted to know was if I agreed with him. Later on, more years passed. We're in a, the mission board sent some people to Romania to check on us. And um, the Romanian pastors who were our coworkers spent hours in the middle of the night talking to these mission leaders and they were picking and picking and picking on Tim and at one point the leaders said, yeah, but, you know, whatever. But Donna, she's doing this and this and this and this, these ministries, they listed them and the mission representative said, that doesn't matter. Tim's the missionary, she's just the wife. And I thought, well, I thought we were a team. We came together, we worked together, we each used our gifts for the Lord. And I would hope that nobody in our church today would say, oh, she's not important, she's just the wife. Not of me, but I mean of your own wife. You wouldn't say that. You'd never say your wife's just the wife. Like equal to the maid, the housekeeper, or the cook. She's your team mate. And God made Adam and said he shouldn't be alone, and he made Eve. Not so that Adam could have a cook and a maid, but so that he'd have a person to work with, a teammate, and that they'd be together. And I don't think that God died more, Jesus died more for the men than he did for women. I think he died for all of us equally. And that we all have value and can serve him in, in ways that he chooses. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't have a hierarchy of who's important to God and who's just the helper. So do you hear those words, right? You hear that um, she was respected as a missionary more when she was single for her contribution, I think is one of the things that I heard from last week. And then when she was married, all of a sudden her her doctrinal positions and her um, perspectives on the gospel were regarded as inconsequential. There's a lot of pieces in there, aren't there? There's a lot of things that are um, complications. <clears throat> If Tim were here, I'd pick on him somehow. Cause 
That would be his, his fault. <laughs> I guess to end that up, in the end, when the board and the mission board and the church made a decision about us, it was really all focused on Tim. Nobody cared about me. I, I was inconsequential. They were mad at Tim because he spoke his mind and disagreed with something the mission was doing, which is basically the whole thing. But I mean, I was like, not there. We, we both went to the counseling and we both filled out all the assignments that we had to write and they'd pick at Tim's word by word. I don't even know if they ever asked me if I wrote it. The only thing they ever asked me is why I was taking so many notes. But it was almost like I just didn't matter to them. My service didn't matter to them and my life didn't matter to them. I was collateral damage. And I guess I had kind of thought about, forgotten about most of that, but the last week some of the memories have come back. And just how demeaning that was to not be, I could have, I could have stayed in Michigan while he was in Indiana and nobody would have noticed, I think. And that's just too bad that that's how, in this day and age, and in our own culture, that's how we treat people. I suppose it would be possible that if you are a team on the field and if there's some accusation of uh, impropriety or in competence, which I don't think in your case you were ever accused of any improprieties, or it was just whether or not Tim was functioning, doing well, or like you said, Tim speaks his mind, and and in the missionary board, and peop, the, as I understand things, Donna, the people in Romania loved and appreciated you both fine, but somehow other missionaries had trouble with him. I suppose it's possible to perceive that if he was the one that was ruffling feathers or causing the conflict, that it would be him that is being evaluated, not you. And if it were the other way around, if you were the one that was regarded as having been the troublemaker, even though it was a what I would regard as largely a false accusation, but either way, in their mind, right, that it might have all been focused on you and it wouldn't have mattered what his position was because there really is you are hooked to each other as a team. Is that possible? Is that a possible way to define it? Or am I, am I washing away the, um, the injustice to you, if that's the right word to use? That's, that is possible. And if it had been, if it really had been a spiritual impropriety on either one of our behalf, then yeah, the team would be sent home. Um, but what I see a lot of the time, there was another couple that from a, another country that was kind of in trouble too because the wife didn't really know the language well enough or whatever. There's a, there's a difference in the way they handle the, the case if it's the man who's accused as opposed to if the woman is. And at the end, they let them go back because it didn't really matter if she spoke the language or not because she wasn't the, the, the head. Um, 
So what you're seeing is that when competence is in question, all that matters is that the husband is competent and that the competency of the wife didn't help his case, nor in the other case did it hurt his case that she was incompetent. So that, that's a, that feels like a straight up double standard, right? Especially if we're supporting the couple as a missionary couple and that we wouldn't have let you go by yourselves having been married. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a, it's a funny, do you see the underlying expectations that are differing? And see, even, even if they would have treated you in a way that didn't feel disrespectful to you, it wouldn't have had to violate what we're regarding as the biblical teaching about headship in the home and all those things, right? I mean, there's not a, we're not saying here that we needed to anoint you as the Pope, right? You know, this is not some sort of a, a women's lib movement thing, right? This is, we're just trying to understand, was, was there a, an unfair treatment of a sister in Christ because of the cultural, hierarchical, what's the word, uh, paternalistic or whatever that word is, right, for male-dominated environments? Is, is that, am I understanding it the right way? Okay. Does that make sense to everyone? I don't want to. You realize here that I'm like terrified <laughs> because this is this is like one of the third rails in our culture, right? In our world and in the church today, the third rail. You know, you understand the term third rail. Third rail is from the olden days when there was electric trains. Two of the rails were the things that the wheels rode on. But the third rail was where all the electricity came from when they were on the ground, not using like, you know, modern day electric trains, they connect to a wire above. Anyway, they ran for a little while, they ran the electricity on the ground. <laughs> so if you touched the third rail, you know, you would get shocked. It would be bad for you. And so that's what I mean by the expression third rail, right? Some things you can talk about. Some things are third rails. If you talk about them, all of a sudden, everybody's anti-aircraft guns get loaded. I'm ready to shoot them down now, <laughs> right? So I, when I say I'm terrified, I only mean that I realize that this is a sensitive issue and that we haven't dealt with it very well and that I am personally not very well versed in it. And so I'm afraid that I might say something that is going to come back and haunt me as being either uh, horribly misogynistic in one direction or horribly unbiblical in the other direction. So you be gracious and teach me carefully, and let's teach one another here, right? So we're giving each other permission to explore something without getting electrocuted, okay? So that's the rules here. And if we're wrong, we're okay, we're okay. We're trying to figure it out. We're all learners. We're not trying to uh, say something too strongly or, or too assuredly. So um, there are two things that I think it's important for us to, to understand together. One of them is the, the tension between gospel and culture. And the other one is the understanding of what, what is the spectrum of biblical interpretations with regard to male-female relationships. 
So um, the which would you rather try to understand first? I sort of think that time-wise, I'd like to talk about the gospel and culture piece, and next week we'll talk about the spectrum of what, where, where, we, where people can be philosophically on the spectrum, one spectrum being straight up 100% um, misogynistic domination, think, uh, uh, think the Taliban, right? That's one view of men and women. The other one being the other complete extreme of, of women as the Pope, right? So, you know, like straight up, uh, more than just egalitarian, but actually um, almost compensatory egalitarian. So egalitarianism on one side, complementarianism on the other side. What is that mix? How do you, what are the issues? Where, are the, where do people draw the lines? And where do we as a church draw the line right now? So that's, so that's something I think I'll reserve to next week. But what I want to talk about right now then is this idea of how we as human beings tend to pull our cultural preferences into the gospel. And this is, um, I would have to quickly um, say that I'm heavily influenced by Tim Keller on this in recent year. And so the last year and a half or so, I've listened to his material quite, um, quite thoroughly. I listen to at least a, an hour or two a week of his sermons, and I'll go back and listen to them over again. And then he was a speaker at that conference. And so there's another, a number of things that he's helping me understand. And so I, I think he's being biblical. So my, I would say he's convincing me from the Bible. But I also want to um, say that not everybody likes Tim Keller either. So I understand that that's part of the, um, I, I realize he's just a human being. But he's been a good teacher for me. So I'm trying to learn that. But, but what we basically do is we can take the gospel, which, and he's going through the book of Galatians right now in one of the studies, and the gospel is the core of our, of our um, faith. And, it's, and he's teaching then and, and pointing out that Paul is convincing and arguing with the Galatian believers that it's Jesus plus nothing. So when, when Paul goes down to, to meet with Peter and James and the others who are important, it's kind of interesting, the men in that room, except they, if you consider that Mark was influenced by Peter, so he wrote the book of Mark probably from a Peter's perspective, and that Luke was a companion of Paul, then the meeting in this room included the authors of every book of the New Testament except Matthew and Hebrews. So every other book in the New Testament was written by Peter, James, and John, and Paul. And so they're in this room, and Paul comes back and says, they added nothing to my message. That was really key, is they didn't add anything to the message. What was the problem? The problem was that there were certain people who were Jewish in their culture. I'm getting a call. Who's that? Was that Sue? May the record show. Um, there were people who, this, is a, this was a difficult time for the church, right? The early Christians were largely Jewish, right? They were mostly Jews at the beginning. And so 
the commission was go into Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the world. And so at the beginning, at Pentecost, all these people were Jews and they were becoming believers and they were, they, they were Jewish still in their, their practices, in their lifestyles, but they were Christians now. And so they weren't part of the synagogue, but they were still Jewish in their culture. And in particular, when you say, what is Jewish culture? It's important and I think valid to recognize that a lot of the laws in the Old Testament are what you call clean laws, are sort of um, intended to, to do two things. They're, they teach us things like whether or not you're supposed to make fabrics together or whether you're supposed to eat pork or whether you're supposed to uh, touch a dead body or not touch a dead body. If you have your menstruation cycle, you're not clean. If you have a nocturnal emission, you're not clean. There's all these rules about cleanliness. That, a lot of things you can't control. And if you are in any of those cases unclean, then you're not allowed to go to worship. And so there's this huge set of ceremonial clean laws that are um, that it's hard to interpret. But um, Tim would argue that they are they have two purposes. One purpose is to persuade us that the law is crushing. We cannot live that perfectly. Right? We can never be clean enough for God. And so we always need sacrifice. Always need somebody else to pay the price. But the other thing that they did is they made the people of Israel distinctive. They made them culturally different. They made them different than their neighbors. And there was a pragmatic component to that. It made them not intermarry. It made it difficult for other cultures to try to intermarry with them. And so it kept them distinctive as a people group. And so the Jewish culture kind of remains consistent, really, even to this day. There's a lot of very, you know, there's people that practice Kosher and, you know, Orthodox Jews have a fairly consistent lifestyle. It's all written in the books. And it was, of course, expanded on and abused by the Pharisees and stuff like that. But the, the point is, is that there's this cultural distinctions. All right. So these people become believers in the Lord Jesus. And finally, at last, they have the gospel. So they've got everything that they need. They understand that you get to believe in Jesus. And that's and that's how you get saved. And it's through faith in Jesus, not by works. And so there's this really cool understanding that the gospel is by grace and by grace alone. All right. Then Peter gets this vision. And in the vision, this, this curtain comes down or this blanket comes down from heaven full of all kinds of unclean foods. Like it was barbecue spare ribs. Right. And it was all the things he was not supposed to eat. So I'm imagining a lot of pork and a lot of shrimp that was inside there. And the voice from heaven said, rise up, Peter, and eat. And he said, oh, not so, Lord. He wouldn't do it. And this came down three times, and he's trying to figure it out. And somebody knocks on the door, and it's Cornelius' servant. It's a Gentile's servant, and they invite Peter over to their house. And so you know the long story in Acts chapter 10. Peter goes there, and he says, I'm not supposed to go in your house. Because that's a cultural violation. That's a clean law violation. He's not supposed to be with Gentile. But, you know, God told me to come. Because it's clear this vision from heaven. And God's working it all out. Everybody knows. And so Peter starts to give him a sermon. And I just love this whole account. Because he's starting to preach. And he doesn't even get to do the invitation part. He barely even gets to. And we're saved by Jesus. And he, in like in the middle of this sentence all of the Gentiles start to get the Holy Spirit poured out on them in heaven in the same way that it happened to them in Pentecost. And Peter is flabbergasted. 
it does not make sense. How on earth is God saving the Gentiles? And then Peter observes in his own heart, he said, he now realizes that God is not a respecter of persons. There, there's not some other piece that gets added onto the gospel that makes it part of the, these other things out here, like the clean laws, like kosher, or, or other things like that, Sabbath days observances, the Sabbath. Those things are culturally fine, but they're not the gospel. And so that's what happened to the Galatian believers is some people from uh, the circumcision group came to the believers in Galatia and said, yeah, 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 we like this Jesus too, but you have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised, then you're righteous with God. So it was Jesus plus works, and you're clean with God. And that's not the gospel. That's a different gospel, and Paul goes out of his way in Galatians over and over to say, any other gospel is no gospel at all. You're reversing the order. You don't clean up, and then you're pleasing to God. It's you're pleasing to God by grace alone, and then God cleans you up. And the, the uh, tendency for us as human beings is to view our cultural nuances, our cultural factors as, as normative for other people, and we tend to judge them. So this is what the circumcision group was doing. Well, time goes by, and there's a church in Antioch, which is a, is a Gentile church, and Barnabas goes up there, and he, he's so excited, he reports that they're all believers, and all these things go. And Peter is visiting, and Peter's eating with the Gentiles quite like, looks like nothing wrong with it, because they're brothers and sisters. They're saved by the same gospel, even if they're not kosher. See, he was, he was living in alignment with the gospel. But then some of these, these circumcision group people came, and the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that Peter started to withdraw from the Gentiles. And it was so bad that um, Paul tells us that even Barnabas started to withdraw. There's so much pressure. And so Paul, he says to him, you, Peter, he, he rebukes him publicly and say, Peter, you're not living like a Jew. You're not. You're not consistent. And here you are, and yet now you're trying to withdraw from those who who are not even Jewish, and you're not living like a Jew. How dare you turn the gospel into Jesus plus something? And so it was a big deal, and Peter repented, and, and they got strained back out. But the, the point is, is that there's, this is an example of where the Jewish believers had a hard time not tying their own cultural characteristics as part of the gospel. They couldn't make the distinction between all of, they were so used to saying, man, you never eat pork. That's an unclean food. That's terrible. It's awful. And fine. But to tie it to the gospel is, the, is when you cross the line. So that's the premise. That's the basis. How do you and I do the same thing? Well, for example, one of the ways is that um, I am a 
middle class, white, westerner, American, right? And so in my world, the time matters. I, I keep track of what time is supposed to start. And so if you say you're going to meet me at 9 o'clock and I'm going to go drive and meet you, if I'm five minutes late, I text you and tell you, hey, I'm running a little bit late. I'll be there about 9.05. And if you don't do the same, I'm a little offended, actually. And I'm going to get kind of judgy. I would even go so far as to say, if you really loved me and you cared about the kingdom of heaven, you would, you would be more prompt. You would pay attention to the, that's what, you see, what I'm doing is a person who believes in Jesus is also a prompt person. That's part of what it means to be sanctified. I, that's the way it is. But that's actually quite culturally bound. That's not all cultures. There are the Hispanic, I think, culture, and, the, uh, and Tim Keller tells a story of a wedding that he did, and it was a wedding between a white and a Hispanic, um, the couple, and all of the white couples, the white person's family was all there on time, and the, the other, the groom, whoever, their family wasn't even there. The wedding was supposed to start, and the groom wasn't even around yet, and all of the all of the people are getting so upset. How rude. They didn't even come to the wedding on time. And yet the other family is saying, what's wrong with these uptight people? They're so not relational. They're so bossy. They're, they get so angry. And so you have this bride side, groom side, and they're angry at each other, both judging the other one. The other one is saying, you're so rude. You don't honor my time value system. And the other one is saying, you're so rude. You don't honor the relation. You're, you're not flexible. You're not people oriented. You don't hang out and talk and make it last longer. And when, uh, when I married into my wife's culture, I learned there's a new thing called three stages of saying goodbye. I mean, did you know that? There's the get up from the chair and walk to the door stage. And then that lasts for quite a while. And then there's the stand by the car stage. And then that lasts for quite a while. And then finally, there's the departure stage. That's a, it's really amazing. I, I, I've kind of learned to embrace it and just flow along. But that's the way that culture works. And somehow my family has picked up on that. The, my kids learned that culture. But anyway, the point is, is that it, those are examples of we have a tendency to think that our perspective of our goodness, our righteousness, our good things is, must be the same as the gospel. And that's just us being confused about what we are in our minds actually adding it to, because what makes me acceptable to Jesus is not my promptness. What makes me acceptable to Jesus is his grace and grace alone. I have no there, there's not any merit in my promptness. And so when somebody else isn't prompt, that's just me being different, not me being better. See, I, I so much want to make my, my cultural nuances, I want to make them better than yours because I feel better. Why would I be that way? Why? Because I, as a sinner, I'm insecure in my own self, and I'm always trying to make myself valid. But when I remember the gospel that it's Jesus that makes me valuable, not my behavior, then I'm freed from having to perform, and I can actually 
accept myself as Jesus has made me. It's not permission to do wrong. It's just to accept where I'm at. And I can accept others and realize that at the foot of the cross, I'm totally equal with a person who has a completely different perspective on the calendar and the clock. And it's wrong for me to judge one way that you follow what I'm trying to say. Yes, Marie, you want to make a comment? I grew up like uh, Tammy. You know, you had three stages of Italian on one side and Pennsylvania Dutch. They were very gregarious. But anyway, um, for me, I never um, put, like, um, the gospel was always complete in Christ. But I think if somebody is habitually late, um, I do feel, and I don't do this in a... Uh, you know, gospel center thing. But I just think um, it's, um, it's thought, it's not very considerate of the other person because, um, you know, if they're going to be a half an hour late, then I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to wait for them for that half hour. And on the other hand, um, if some people are, uh, they, they don't really enjoy... Um, one another, like, like the Hispanics, you know, are very, uh, then I think, yeah, then we can change to be that way, be more warm-hearted. But I never put the two as far as a spiritual a attitude together. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate that. This is a representative topic. I'm trying to give us something that's a little less stepping on our toes. And I think you could argue that it is not courteous to constantly be late. But it is also an area where we, we need to recognize that there could be cultural differences. For some people, it's just fuzzier. It's just four o'clock means between three and five, and that's good enough. And you just got to understand that, otherwise you're going to beat your head on the wall every time in that culture. And so you just got to kind of realize that it's going to be that way, and when everybody shows up, then the wedding starts, and you just need to not be angry about it. That's... So, so the, but the, the, this, is a, this is a example that we're a little, but what I want to say now is, the, what I'm trying to say is, are there, is it not possible that there are particular male-female relationship things that we have brought into our understanding of the gospel that we would fight over? that might be just as silly, as, just as wrong as the people who fought over whether you should be circumcised or not. We, you see, when we miss the nature of the gospel entirely, when we add something as having to be present or else you're not pleasing God, when we do that, there's a danger of, of elevating something to the same level of the gospel. And if we did then the gospel would only work in patriarchal certain kinds, and only the Amish culture, or in only the Italian culture. And If we were going to make some things have to be there, then the gospel doesn't work in everywhere, and yet it does, right? The, Jesus reaches people from... And when you become a Christian, as a, if you're an African, you don't become an American Christian, you become an African Christian, and there is such a thing as a Christian African with African culture, an African whatever else those things might mean, right? And so 
we're being super um, politically incorrect to even describe people in large groups by saying African or Hispanic, because even that's dangerous. But what I'm trying to I'm trying to argue here is that it's easy for us to think that our norms, our cultural preferences, our experience are part of the main package that has to be true for everybody when it might not be true at all. And therefore, we have to think twice or at least be open to evaluating, is our position on the role of women and men in the church, is that position informed by an eternal principle from God's word or is it informed by the way we've always done it or the way my mom and dad always did it or the way grandpa and grandpa did it or what, you know what I'm saying? What is informing our position there? And I, I'm not suggesting that we throw everything out. I'm just trying to get us to open our hearts to the possibility that we may be informing our decisions through lenses that are not the gospel's lens. Does that compute? You follow what my goal is at least? We might come to the complete conclusion that we're wrong in the other direction, whatever other direction you're afraid of that I'm leaning, right? But we want to, so we want to understand that um, we need to be humble and recognize what Peter recognizes. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't treat Jews better than Gentiles. He doesn't think they're better. He didn't just say, okay, I'll let the half-breeds in too. I'll let the lessers in too. No, he gave the Gentiles all of the same blessing. And so a Gentile is not less than a Jew in the body of Christ. They're both totally in, they're both one, right? I remember Steve's good message on God breaking down the barrier, the dividing wall between the two. That's the amazing part of the Bible is that, of the New Testament, is that the church is comprised of two groups that were at complete racial loggerheads. All right, time's up. Next time we'll try to talk about the, the spectrum then of what, what is the spectrum of uh, complementarian or hyper-complementarian and egalitarian. What are, the, what are the positions that the world holds and where are the lines drawn so that we can at least understand the map for clarification? Does it make sense? Father, help us to understand you. May we follow the gospel and not man talk. In Jesus' name, amen.